KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. So what happens when mass protests occur in the midst of a global pandemic? Well, we're about to find out. So what are the concerns of an epidemiologist when you see thousands of people out in the street? Many actually are trying to practice social distancing and wearing masks, but others aren't. We wanted to look at the confluence of these two events strictly through the lens of what it could mean for the spread of the virus. So we reached out to Dr. Annette Rivoli, Dean of Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. She's an epidemiologist, and we had a really interesting conversation. Give a listen. So we are kind of in the midst of something that we haven't seen before, and that is widespread social protest in the midst of a pandemic. And we wanted to talk to you strictly from the epidemiologist standpoint and look at it through the prism of being told for months, social distancing, so important. And now we've got a lot of people close together all over the country. What are your biggest concerns here what are you looking for as over the next couple weeks here because we're going to learn a lot about COVID-19 kind of in real time here aren't we yes absolutely so as you know mass gatherings are generally forbidden highly discouraged during an outbreak or a pandemic and the reason for that is anytime you bring large numbers of people together it becomes increasingly difficult to enforce measures that prevent contact that could lead to infection. It's harder to socially distance people. It's harder to maintain the magical six feet of distance to enforce mask wearing, et cetera. And I think that there's a great lesson from the flu pandemic of 1918. And quite a bit has been written about this. You know, it's an intriguing story. And we try to always learn lessons from history. So during the summer of 1918, the pandemic had already started. And what wound up happening was that Philadelphia organized a very grand parade. The, pur- the purpose of the parade was noble. It was to bolster morale, support the war effort. They were raising money for bands. They brought marching bands. Women's groups marched. Troops marched in it. Boy Scouts. And they were trying to generate funds to pay for the war through government bonds. In fact, one of the interesting points is that the capstone of the day was a concert led by John Philip Sousa, the March King. So when this started, this was in September, when the parade stepped off, over 200,000 people were jammed onto Broad Street. There was a lot of cheering, shouting, chanting, singing. And the marchers went on for about two miles. There were floats in it. They had planes, biplanes, bands, etc. And as you know, when you sing or you shout, you aerosolize virus. Virus, if you're if you're infected with a viral infection, you spread that 
not only through droplets, but also in an airborne fashion. So during this parade, the fallout from it was very, very swift and very, very deadly. Within a couple of days, as early as two days after the parade, the city's health director at the time, public health director, his last name was Cruzen, made a pronouncement. They started to see the epidemic was present in civilian populations and really following the model of what was being seen in military camps up until that time. The virus was affecting young, healthy people. Within 72 hours of the parade, at the time, Philadelphia had 31 hospitals, and every bed in Philadelphia's hospitals was filled. Okay, so the healthcare system was being overwhelmed by this. Within a week, 2,600 people had died in Philadelphia from the flu or complications of the flu. And a week after that, the number pretty much doubled to more than 4,500. The city of Philadelphia was, of course, unprepared for this. Uh, A lot of the health professionals were in military service at the time, and it was devastating. So at that point, to slow this, city leaders made the decision to close down Philadelphia. So by the first week in October, they wound up instituting measures. They shut down most public places, schools, churches, theaters. But the situation remained relentless. The hospitals were understaffed. They were paralyzed by this. Morgues couldn't keep pace with the demand. Families had to, in essence, bury their own dead. There was a shortage of caskets. And, you know, there was a phrase from this time called, there were bodies stacked like cordwood. And then there, there was also, in the wake of this, the usual rumors and concerns. And at the time during that war, there was the feeling, erroneous, of course, that the Germans had done this. So, again, then you see further social disruption and anger at groups over this. So that was the situation in Philly. Now, other cities, and I don't quite have the data on this, but I believe St. Louis did not allow one of these celebratory bond-raising parades, and their numbers were dramatically lower than the numbers that I quoted for the city of Philadelphia. And the interesting thing now, of course, it was a different time, We have better technology, better understanding of how uh, these viruses are spread. But remember, this was also in an outside environment. Plenty of air. It wasn't in a restaurant, a church, a school, a closed environment. This was a march out in the sunshine, out in the air, etc., So I think that there's that history lesson that we should all make note of. So how concerned are you for the next couple of weeks, strictly from uh, the possibility of a spike uh, in COVID-19 as a result of of the protests, and not just in the Philadelphia area, but nationwide? So I am very concerned, but remember, at the same time, we are having a rebooting or a uh, reopening of businesses and other things, it's going to be 
very hard, I think, to sort this out, that what is coming from the recovery plan and what is coming from some of the demonstrations. You know, I've seen videos. Luckily, our city of Camden, uh, thankfully, was not affected by this. But I, I have seen other, you know, news clips of this. And uh, sometimes you see the protesters marching peacefully with distance between them and their masks on. And I think that, you know, certainly uh, there is a right to protest, especially at a very, very tough time in U.S. history. I also am concerned, though, that recall that the hardest hit communities are inner cities with minority populations. African-American and Latino populations have been hit much harder with illness, with COVID-19, and with deaths, the mortality, the illness, etc. So I'm especially concerned that uh, places where these riots are happening will actually compound the problems for citizens of those communities with even more illness and death beyond the baseline that we've been seeing. This is a health disparity that we're looking at. It's a health disparity, and I'm concerned that it might also be exacerbated by some of what we've seen. But the tale will be told over the next days to weeks, uh, and I'm sure that our public health authorities are, are tracking this. Would we get, just because all these people, and there's been a lot of talk kind of leading into the summer that people thought that outdoors the sunlight would affect the virus adversely, stuff like that. We're going to learn an awful lot about all these theories and hopes, you know, by the, you know, end of this month, aren't we? Yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, we are seeing uh, nationally an overall decline in the numbers of cases in various areas. We're seeing this worldwide in some places. Other places are now seeing an uptick. Brazil, for example. But many countries, especially some of the countries that were affected earlier, they've seen a decline and they're returning to the new normal of their activities. Similarly, in the state of New Jersey, we are seeing a decline in cases and uh, slowly reopening. The governor of the state has his uh, stages and is issuing a very, very planned response to reopening. There was an interesting comment by Scott Gottlieb. He was the former FDA commissioner, and I heard his interview on Face the Nation, and I think he said it very well, and if I may, I'm going to quote him. Um, Chains of transmission will have become lit from these gatherings. So in Minnesota, where protests started, there was actually an increase in cases and hospitalizations even before the protests. And I think that that should be noted too. So we're converging with the reopening. So I think some of these will be multifactorial. Any uptick in cases that we see will be multifactorial, not just the protests or riots, but also the impact of reopening. And it may be very hard to sort out which element predominates as uh, as the cause of this. 
We have further evidence, though, that measures that have been implemented, distancing, wearing of masks, even wearing of eye protection are effective. And if I may, I I would like to share a study that was just recently published online by the, the highly respected medical journal, The Lancet, and it came out on June 2nd. And this was a meta-analysis. And a meta-analysis is a statistical analysis that combines the results of many scientific studies. So this was published, and it's from a group called Surge. And this is the first review of all available evidence of the effectiveness of measures like physical distancing, masks, eye protection to prevent not only COVID-19, but other respiratory diseases. So greater physical distancing does significantly reduce risk of transmission. And this is true not only in healthcare settings, but also in community settings. So it's applicable not only to the hospitals, doctors' offices, but also to settings in the community, going to a restaurant, going to school, etc. So risk of infection is very highly dependent on distance from an infected individual and also the type of face mask and eye protection. So they looked at some things The physical distancing of at least one meter or about a yard, that's about three feet, is strongly associated with a very large protective effect. But the distance of two meters or about six feet is felt to be even more effective. So I'll quote this number. Uh, If you're at one meter or three feet of distance from somebody who has infection, your risk of infection in this meta-analysis was 12.8%. If the distance was six feet or two meters, it dropped to 2.6%. And again, this was applicable both in healthcare and non-healthcare centers. This meta-analysis reviewed over 170 observational studies. It was not only from the United States, but worldwide, six continents. And there were over 25,000 people in this. Now, this was not a randomized trial. So the next step will perhaps be to do some kind of trial looking at this. So the other finding from this was that each meter of increased distance led to a doubling of change in relative risk. And that was statistically significant. The magical six feet of distance comes from some studies actually from the 1930s. And that's the distance that is touted when you're having things like the aerosolized droplets that come out, the heavy droplets, uh, when you cough or you sneeze. And these droplets come out, they're wet, they're sticky, they rapidly go to the ground. Okay, they rapidly go to the ground, hence the six feet. But now, compared to the 1930s, we have more sophisticated ways to look at this. And that's aerosolized transmission, talking, singing. You know, we've had some outbreaks, which were frightening, involving church choirs, 
So the six feet rule is based on these studies of respiratory droplets. And those are the large droplets that settle out quickly. These other aerosols are very tiny particles. And now scientifically, we have instruments that quote unquote, see these very tiny aerosolized particles. They're measured really in microns or one millionth of a meter. And uh, just by comparison, a human red blood cell is about five microns. So they're very, very small. Those float on air currents and can take hours to settle out, especially in indoor air. Now for the airborne, six feet is not enough. You really need masks. So one thing that I would uh, leave your listeners with is that it's been said that if you're outside, okay, because these events are happening outside, if you're outside and if you can smell cigarette smoke or if you could smell somebody's barbecue, you can also become infected with aerosols. So hence the need for masks. And if you watch people who are wearing masks, some of them are not wearing their masks properly. You need to have some fitting around the face. If you have a bandana on, it shouldn't be hanging where if you could feel breeze up under your mask or your face covering, that will not be quite adequate protection. So I stand for peaceful protests, but some element of rules because of the pandemic have to be followed. The protesters should socially distance. They should wear masks, carry some alcohol-based hand gel, sanitize their hands, and certainly keep and maintain this distance as you would in an organized, peaceful protest. And my final question, assuming we have a surge, either here or in the fall, people are pretty confident there's going to be another. Do you feel how much, I think we can all agree we are better prepared. How much better prepared do you think we are overall as a society should another big wave of COVID-19 come? There are predictions for another wave, maybe more than one wave. And I do believe that we are better prepared. Each day we learn more about the virus. Our public health authorities have made substantial improvements. Our healthcare infrastructures have been strengthened with plans for, you know, with more ventilators more personal protective equipment. But once again, it becomes a numbers game, okay? So it depends upon the numbers. We may very well find ourselves in a situation where we have a start for reentry and then measures have to be enhanced again and a bit of a pullback on those. I think that there needs to also be a look at other strategies, perhaps a more focused approach you know, for maybe the most vulnerable populations, those with risk factors, and how we affect those populations. And then other people who have lesser risk could pursue more of the activities, but again, in a very responsible manner. You know, I know this as we're preparing our school for our reopening, that we are doing a lot of measures, uh, the social distancing, universal masking, uh, limiting uh, 
flow of persons into the building, no mass meetings. We'll still continue to handle some things remotely, allowing folks who have risk factors to continue to, serious risk factors for this to continue to work from home, helping those who still have childcare responsibilities because the summer camps may not be open. So we're working on all of those things. One other thing that we did not speak about was, and I think that this is also important, a number of testing sites have been opened in uh, various areas, and uh, including inner city areas to ensure that people in urban environments have access to to, uh, testing, you know, if they have symptoms and it's convenient within their communities. Several of these testing centers have been closed because of concerns for violence and the protection of the people who are staffing them. And I know in Los Angeles, it was announced, their mayor announced that they were closing some of these centers. So this is an important service to these communities that these communities don't have access to when there are riots or social unrest. So, you know, I think it's peaceful protests, great, fine with social distancing and universal masking. But when services to populations have to be curtailed, that actually deserves those populations. So that is my uh, statement on that. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area, or if you want to know how what you see or hear on the news is going to change your own life or your own routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 